Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Saturday, September 17th, 2022. It's been 3,123 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 206 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess Russia's war crimes in Bucha and Mariupol were not isolated incidents by bad actors frustrated by grinding offensives, but are an integral part of Russian military doctrine. The same crimes against humanity will be found throughout the liberated territories of Ukraine. Second, We assess that any thought among supporting allies that Ukrainian battlefield successes indicate an opportunity to reduce ongoing military aid will evaporate as the scale of atrocities in Kharkiv is discovered. Third, Russia's stature on the world stage is crumbling before our eyes, with President Putin repeatedly humiliated at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, where China and Turkey are now the dominant players. Fourth, Russian attempts to stealth-mobilize more troops are almost certain to fail, as the efforts are too little too late, and recruitment programs are driven by desperation, not patriotism. Fifth, we maintain the continued Russian offensive on Bakhmut-Solidar is pointless and will not provide a tactical or strategic victory. Sixth, we maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and conditions, forces will seek to surrender. Eighth, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed, and the Russian military has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing collapse with their available resources. And finally, there is now a small but noteworthy risk that as the, quote, special military operation fails, the Putin regime will be at risk of political upheaval that could result in government changes. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. There was conflicting information from the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and Operational Command South, or OCS. OCS reported that a platoon of Russian troops, supported by a single tank, attempted to advance on Stepova Dolina from the Pravdine direction. GSAFU reported that both settlements were shelled, implying that Ukrainian forces held both villages. The attack on Stepova Dolina was unsuccessful, but we've adjusted the map due to the fog of war. 
we moved the line of conflict through Pravdine and marked the settlement, along with Mirn, Pareshevi, Miroliobivka, and Soldatske, as contested. This was done out of an abundance of caution and our commitment to conservative mapping. A platoon of Russian troops tried to advance on Ivanivka from Arkhangelsk and was unsuccessful. Ukrainian forces struck Russia's occupation headquarters in Kherson using rockets fired by HIMARS in a daytime attack. Eyewitness accounts report at least five rockets struck the Kherson administrative court while the Russian-appointed municipal leaders were in a meeting. At least three city officials were killed in the attack, and videos showed panicked civilians running from the area. Another video showed wounded and one potentially dead person lying in the streets. The Ukrainian Air Force flew 15 ground support missions, and ground forces carried out 250 fire missions. Rockets fired from HIMARS destroyed a compound of Russian troops and equipment waiting to cross the Dnipro at Starazburivka and an electronic warfare, or EW, station in Novakakhovka. A pontoon bridge at the confluence of the Inulets and Dnipro River in Sadova was also destroyed. Russian forces have been targeting the coastal regions of the Mykolaiv Oblast with missile strikes. Missiles hit Ochakiv for the third day in a row, and in the coastal town of Dmitrivka, a man was killed in a cruise missile strike. Our assessment here is unchanged from September 11th. You'll find it in the first seven minutes of this past Sunday's episode. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. There was no change in the status of the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP, where the situation remains stable. Under the supervision of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Energoatom was finally able to deliver 25 truckloads of spare parts, chemicals, and diesel fuel to ZNPP. The parts will enable technicians to repair damaged power lines, and there is enough diesel fuel to run on-site generators for 10 days. Nikopol was once again attacked by grad rockets fired from MLRS and artillery shells, according to Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor. More than 40 rockets and shells landed in the city, wounding one person. Russian forces also shelled Markhanets with artillery and grad rockets, injuring two civilians who required hospitalization. Reznichenko updated the situation at the Karachuniv Reservoir Dam on the Inulets River. The Inulets rose one meter above the mean level, and by destroying dikes downstream, officials dropped the river 60 centimeters. There were 112 homes damaged in the flooding, and 11 people required technical rescues, but there were no fatalities. Pictures showed engineers removing the damaged sluice gate, as we reported on September 15th, and Reznichenko was optimistic the situation would be stabilized soon. Oleksandr Vilkul, head of the Kriviri Military Civilian Administration, reported that a Russian missile struck the city for a third time in a row, targeting dam and dike infrastructure. Russian forces shelled Zelenodolsk and Velika Kostromka with rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The attack killed two civilians. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. There was only sporadic artillery fire along the line of conflict from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv, 
to Molly Sherbaki. Ole Boyko, a Gauleiter in Berdyansk, and his wife, Lyudmila Boyko, who chaired the election commission for the now-defunct Russia referendum, were assassinated in a parking garage by insurgents. A Russian military base and ammunition depot in the Radivonika Reserve by Melitopol was destroyed in a HIMARS strike. Local residents reported multiple secondary explosions, and the site was still on fire hours after the attack. Insurgents also destroyed the train tracks and blew up a railroad station near Melitopol. In southwest Donetsk, Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR militia officials, claimed they destroyed two Ukrainian armored personnel carriers and three mortar positions, but did not indicate where the fighting occurred in the report. West of Donetsk, positional battles were fought in Avdivka and Novomikhailivka. There was only sporadic artillery fire on the line of conflict from New York to the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, with one exception. The center of Avdivka was pounded by concentrated artillery fire by the DNR. Fuel shortages remain a problem in the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic, with long lines forming when stations have fuel available. Panic buying was caused after the Russian retreat from Kharkiv and rampant rumors that Ukrainian forces were forming to advance into Donetsk City. The supply chain has yet to recover, and panic buying continues when gas stations receive fuel shipments. Residents of the DNR continue to flee to Russia, with the line to cross at the Uspenka-Avilo-Uspenka border checkpoint extending 10 kilometers long. Bakhmut remains the only region in Ukraine where significant kinetic warfare continues, and today is almost a complete repeat of yesterday. East of Bakhmut, the private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, tried to push through Ukrainian defenses east of the city and remained unable to move the line of conflict. Wagner also continued their attempts to advance into Vesela Dolina and Mykolaiv Kadruha without success. Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat continued their efforts in Zaitseve, the one south of Bakhmut, and continued to ponder their lousy life choices, probably missing the days of making TikTok videos and not actually fighting. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. We recapped it on Thursday's episode around minute 14. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, Ukrainian forces have reportedly liberated Sosnova and Studenok. There were claims by pro-Ukrainian sources that Oleksandrivka had been liberated, which the DNR militia denied on September 15th. We've coded the settlement as contested based on the available social intelligence. Ukrainian troops were advancing on Rupci and secured the Oskil River crossing. Russian forces shelled the recently liberated and historic village of Sviatohirsk, killing one and injuring eleven. We had previously reported that Dibrova was liberated. Ukrainian forces put a period at the end of that sentence, with a video showing the shattered remains of the village being liberated and the Ukrainian flag flying once again. The same can be said for the village of Shurov, which we previously reported as liberated when a video showed Ukrainian infantry arriving in the resort village on foot. The DNR militia posted a propaganda video from Lehman, which provided a treasure trove of social intelligence. The road between Lehman and Zarichne is open and does not appear to be under Ukrainian fire control. 
The video was recorded in multiple locations and throughout the day. There were no signs of fighting within the town and no sounds of distant artillery or gunfire. We maintain that Wargonzo's earlier reports that fighting is happening in the forests outside and around Lehman are accurate. Based on weather conditions, the video was recorded before September 16th. The security situation on the Lehman Zarichne Road may have deteriorated due to Ukrainian advances northwest, southwest, and southeast of Lehman. Ukrainian forces in Dibrova declared they were getting closer to Lehman and victory would come soon, further supporting that fighting had not yet begun within the town. In Russian-controlled Nizhnya Duvanka, a rocket attack using HIMARS destroyed the Palace of Culture. The town is located on the P-66 highway, which has become a critical ground line of communication, or G-lock, those are supply lines, after Russian forces retreated from Kharkiv. Russian troops have been moving to reinforce Svatov to the south. A bomb exploded inside the general prosecutor's office in Russia-occupied Luhansk, killing general prosecutor Serhi Gorenko and his deputy Katarina Stelenko. Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, and Russian officials blamed insurgents. However, there have been no claims of responsibility. ISW speculated that the assassination might have been done by the Russian FSB, believing that Gorenko and Stelenko would have deep knowledge of Russian war crimes since the 2014 occupation. Russian forces shelled the recently liberated settlements of Ozern, Bilohorivka, in Luhansk, Spirna, and Yorova. They also shelled Siversk and the surrounding settlements. As for our assessment in northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, we maintain the Russian occupation of most of Luhansk is now at risk of collapsing, with the fall of the Izum Axis and Ukrainian troops actively operating across the Siversky Donetsk River. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, on September 15th, the Russian border crossing at Kudivka Nechotivka was shelled by Ukraine, setting the border and customs building on the Russian side on fire. Russian forces responded by shelling Kosachalopan. In recently liberated Dovorichna, Ukrainian forces have secured the dovorichna Ryanikivka bridge and crossed the Oskil River, securing the second wet crossing over the Oskil in the last 24 hours. The Industrialny district of Kharkiv was hit by two S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for ground attack, creating a fire in a local business. There were no casualties. Russian sources claim four missiles struck Chukhiv. Ukrainian forces secured the eastern half of Kupyansk, establishing the third wet crossing over the Oskil River. A graphic video showed that Ukrainian forces were operating in the industrial district east of the railroad yards, and it was reported they were already advancing south toward Borova. Some pro-Russian accounts have denied that Ukraine crossed the Oskil River and secured the city's eastern half. However, Russian war correspondent Vladlin Tatarsky reported that Ukrainian forces had established positions on the east bank of the Oskil. 
Ukrainian forces continue to find large caches of Russian ammunition, including a supply of 125-millimeter high-explosive tank shells. A recent video showed Ukrainian special operation forces moving through a massive weapons depot using night vision. Experts estimated enough military hardware and ammunition had been left behind to create one to two fully formed combined arms combat brigades. That is some ammunition shortage. Efforts to make Balaklia safe continued, with Explosive Ordnance Disposal, or EOD, experts demining a bridge rigged to explode by Russian troops with 400 kilograms of hexane. To the north in the Cherniev and Sumy region, the village of Kostyantanivka came under heavy artillery fire, according to Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor. He reported a summer kitchen and a small field of watermelons were destroyed, and the attack caused four fires. To the south in the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, a life raft from the sunken Russian missile cruiser Moskva was found adrift in the Black Sea. Life jackets had been tied to the raft, the only thing keeping it afloat. The personal effects of Russian sailors and marines, along with their service numbers on the life jackets and uniforms, were also found. There were no human remains or notes aboard the raft. On the Russian front, members of the 206th Regiment of the LNR 2nd Army Corps claim they've been deployed to the Valyuki district in the Bilgorod Oblast. Some quick assessment here. The deployment of defensive troops on the Russian border shows that Russian military officials are concerned that Ukraine could cross the border in force. Our team was actually discussing yesterday that the fastest way to Troitsky in northern Luhansk would be through Russia at the Pisky lugachevka border crossing. But we dismissed this as too provocative and deleted the assessment from yesterday's situation report. Clearly, though, the Russian Ministry of Defense believes that an attack in this direction is a possibility. Also worth noting, using the LNR militia to defend positions within Russia indicates that Russian military forces are severely degraded. Valyuki is the site of a Russian helicopter base and was heavily shelled by Ukrainian forces on September 15th. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Hey, fun fact, it has been exactly zero days since the mainstream media or the Kremlin brought up nuclear war. In an interview with the United States network CBS, U.S. President Joe Biden was asked what he would say to Russian President Vladimir Putin if he considered using chemical or tactical nuclear weapons. Biden replied, quote, Don't you will change the face of war like nothing since World War II, end quote. When pressed on a hypothetical U.S. response, Biden stated, quote, Do you think I would tell you if I knew exactly how it would be? Of course I won't tell you. It will have consequences. They will become more outcast in the world than ever, end quote. President Putin stayed on message that everything was going to plan with the, quote, special military operation in Ukraine, telling reporters in Uzbekistan, quote, the main task remains unchanged and it is being implemented, end quote. Putin also declared that the full might of the Russian army had not been used, despite pulling military units from CSTO nations and as far away as the Kuril Islands off the coast of Japan. 
But hey, there are up to two battalion tactical groups worth of Russian soldiers in Transnistria who remain fresh and combat-ready. Later, Putin stated that the special military operation goal was only to secure the Donbass, walking back claims made in August that the goals were capturing most of Ukraine and removing the current government. If you're an American taxpayer wondering if the $14.5 billion in military aid provided to Ukraine since January 21, 2021 has been money well spent, we've got an answer. Fleeing Russian troops abandoned an R-381T2M radio monitoring station. The unit is entirely intact and fully modernized with the R-381TM Terran-M Automatic Signal Intelligence Analysis Complex. This mobile intelligence-gathering vehicle can pull in signals from 1.5 to 3,000 MHz and provides the hardware for technical analysis of enemy communications. Now, this is in addition to a complete Orlin 10 complex that was captured, including service manuals, signal extenders, and base station equipment. Intelligence experts believe the equipment captured just in the last week has set Russian electronic warfare systems back a decade. Now, this is just some straight-up opinion. Was it worth it? How much are the men and women of the armed forces and their ability to have secure battlefield communications worth to you? Politico reported that low-level discussions continued between Kyiv and Washington, D.C. on acquiring F-16 fighter planes, Patriot missile systems, and Gray Eagle combat drones. The 2023 Pentagon budget includes money earmarked to train Ukrainian pilots to fly the F-16 and, quote, other aircraft, with many observers believing the F-15 Strike Eagle and the A-10 Thunderbolt ground attack aircraft are prime candidates. Ukraine will receive delivery of the first two NASM's medium-range anti-aircraft systems before the end of the year. The system was jointly developed by Norway and the United States and is deployed in Washington, D.C. The United States committed to delivering the first two systems earlier this year, and Ukraine will receive six more starting in 2023. Poland has taken a giant step in retiring its MiG-29 fighter planes, agreeing to buy 48 F-A-50 fighter jets from South Korea. The first 12 aircraft will arrive in 2023. Poland still operates the fleet of the Cold War-era fighter planes, and there was speculation at the beginning of the war that the aging but still effective aircraft would be transferred to Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke with Canadian President Justin Trudeau about the ongoing situation in Ukraine and continued cooperation between the two nations. Trudeau hinted in a tweet that an aid package was coming to help Ukraine get through the coming winter. Ukrainian ministers have agreed on a draft law that will criminalize civil servants who forced Ukrainian citizens to get Russian passports. Irina Verechuk, deputy prime minister and minister for reintegration of the temporarily occupied territories of Ukraine, noted that international law does not provide any guidance for passportization of citizens, which has forced Ukraine to strengthen its laws. Let's talk about Russian mobilization and military status. After Russia turned to Iran for combat drones, questions have been raised about Russia's drone program and capabilities. Dmitry Shugayev, director of the Russian Federal Service for Military Technical Cooperation, channeled his inner Donald Trump when he said, quote, 
We don't have a problem with drones. We have the best drones. We have the most amazing drones. End quote. We're not being snarky, okay? This is 100% word for word what he said. Russia has been unable to replace its Orlan 10 reconnaissance drones at a fast enough pace to keep up with losses. Drones that have been shot down use consumer DSLR cameras from Canon and disposable plastic water bottles for fuel tanks. So far, Russia has not been able to field mid-altitude combat drones that match the capabilities of the Bayraktar TB2 used by Ukraine. Pictures and videos continue to emerge from the LNR, showing men being forcibly conscripted off the streets. The Second Army Corps of the LNR is combat-destroyed and has been unable to reconstitute its force using conventional recruiting and conscription means since June. German Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht told Reuters she doesn't believe Russia's military reserves are as large as advertised, and Moscow struggles to manage massive troop and equipment losses. Lambrecht said, quote, The idea that the Russian forces have practically unlimited military means at their disposal is not true, end quote. Adding it will be interesting to see how big Russian reserves really are, quote, I think they are much smaller than we probably thought at first. End quote. Ukrainian military expert Ole Zdanov reported that Russia had to remove their war dead in overloaded Kamaz trucks after a HIMARS strike in Kherson and due to heavy losses suffered in fighting for control of Vasilivka. Russian deserters in Kherson are stealing speedboats to cross the Dnipro River after the destruction of the food warehouse and logistical hub in Dudchane earlier this week, some Russian units have run out of rations and drinking water. It is claimed that some units are trying to cross the Dnipro by any means available, forcing soldiers to steal the boats. The main intelligence directorate of Ukraine's defense ministry released an intercepted phone call of a Russian soldier calling Kadyrov's soldiers, quote, cowards. He did use an adjective of the F-bomb variety, or V-bomb if you speak Russian or Ukrainian. The soldier claims that Kadyrovites retreated as soon as artillery shelling started, leaving regular Russian soldiers to fend for themselves. PMC Wagner is sharing videos of Russian prison convicts preparing to leave for cannon fodder military training before deployment in Ukraine. The fine specimen in one of the videos appears shockingly unfit and with thick glasses. He declares that all, quote, ukropus, which is an ethnic slur, will be effed when he arrives. Watch the video, trust me. We link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Honestly, we have serious questions about his ability to make it through PMC Wagner training, much less deployment. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is graphic detail in today's report, and if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Ukrainian troops who liberated Kharkiv were greeted by a dog that Russian soldiers had mutilated. 
Despite being tortured, the medium-sized brown and tan dog cautiously greeted its liberators, who discovered that someone had carved a Z in its snout. In Izum, the human toll is growing, with officials estimating that the number of people killed during occupation will approach a thousand. Just as in Bucha, Hostomel, and Irpin, the roads on the outskirts of Izum are littered with civilian cars that were shot to pieces. Unlike those previous cities, though, Izum was heavily bombed by the Russian Air Force, with entire residential blocks in total ruin. Local residents claim that during the early days of occupation at one five-story building, Russian troops forced residents to extract 47 bodies, which were taken to an unknown location. Ukrainian officials began the process of exhuming the 440 to 500 bodies buried in a makeshift mass grave on the forested outskirts of Izum. Among the bodies recovered, almost all showed signs of violent death, and some showed signs of torture and execution. A grave marker showed that a mother, father, and six-year-old daughter had been buried together after dying in an artillery attack. Other graves revealed Ukrainian soldiers and civilians with their hands bound, signs of mutilation, and evidence they were shot at close range. Ukrainian residents of Izum reported they were forced at gunpoint to move and bury the bodies while Russian soldiers looked on. United Nations spokesperson Elizabeth Cross wrote that the UN was organizing a monitoring visit to Izum to aid Ukrainian officials in determining the victim's cause of death. In nearby Balaklia, the so-called Chief of the People's Militia was captured by Ukrainian law enforcement as he tried to flee from Ukraine. The unidentified 48-year-old collaborated with Russian occupation leaders and was given the title of Chief of a Schutzmannschaft-like force. His unit worked from April to September with Russian units, including going on patrol. While attempting to flee, he presented an expired ID card at a checkpoint, resulting in his capture. The BBC traveled to the recently liberated town of Veliki Prochodi, where residents described life under occupation as, quote, six months of hell. At a dairy farm, the remains of cows were found in their barns after they died of thirst and starvation. Russian troops would not permit the family to care for the animals and didn't even appear to consider slaughtering them to use as food for themselves. Residents reported that their homes were constantly searched and looted with frequent beatings. Some were taken away to a makeshift prison in Strilecha, a village on the Russian border. One woman said she watched her relative beaten for no reason, with Russian forces demanding to know where his phone was, even though the man did not own one. He was taken away twice, once for two days and another for twelve. He described being kept in a cellar with a wet floor, no heat, and nothing to sit or lie on. The remaining villagers report they were forced into slave labor, paid only with food and cigarettes. If people were too weak or refused to work, Russian troops would shoot them in the knee. On February 24th, the village was home to a thousand people. Today, only 150 remain. Outside the village, a small mass grave of Ukrainian soldiers was found. In Kupyansk, Russian occupation forces held up to 400 Ukrainians in a jail facility meant for 140 people. The prisoners were kept in, quote, inhumane conditions, where sleep deprivation was used as torture.
Prisoners were brought from across Kharkiv and held for refusing to cooperate with Russian occupation authorities. So far, Ukrainian investigators have found 10 torture chambers across the liberated territory. Ukrainian forces rescued seven Sri Lankan nationals who Russian forces in the Kharkiv region had held since March. The group was medical students who had been studying at the Kupiansk Medical College when the war started. Russian soldiers held them prisoner in a basement since the city was occupied. The students are being provided with psychological and medical care. At the time of recording, Sri Lankan officials had not made a statement. Ukrainian soldiers are making another grisly discovery. Wounded Russian soldiers who were executed instead of evacuated as part of the retreat. Ukrainian officials reported that 80% of the buildings in recently liberated Viskopilia are destroyed. Once home to more than 4,000 people, the town only has 270 residents and is still subject to Russian artillery fire. Retreating Russian forces looted the town, intentionally destroyed homes, damaged the solar power farm, and killed livestock. President Zelensky addressed his heartbroken nation again, asking the world to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, saying, quote, The world must know that Russia leaves traces of atrocities, traces of terror everywhere in the occupied territory. You saw Bucha. You saw Mariupol. Now it's Izum. Today I am addressing everyone, America and Europe, politicians and societies, the UN and all international organizations, the leaders of state and all ordinary people who value life. Today there is only one thing, recognizing the truth, recognizing Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, end quote. United States Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal have introduced legislation declaring Russia a state sponsor of terrorism and bypassing the United States Department of State, which currently holds the decision-making power. The Biden administration has been reluctant to declare Russia a terrorist state due to economic concerns for partner nations that could be hit with punitive sanctions. Russian state media agency TASS shared claims made by Gauleiter Vitali Ganchev, the occupation head for the Kharkiv Oblast, that Ukrainians were committing war crimes in the liberated territories. Vitali claims that people are being tied to trees with their Russian passports nailed through their feet. He claimed this is happening in Izum, Kupiansk, Veliky Burluk, and Volchansk. He also claimed that people were being held hostage, so to speak, and not allowed to leave the liberated territories. No photos, videos, or eyewitness accounts were provided to back up the claims. An editor's note. It is simply amazing. Every town where Russian atrocities have been discovered was mentioned on his list. What a coincidence. President Zelensky offered to end the shutdown of the Tolyedi odessa ammonia pipeline in exchange for Ukrainian prisoners of war. Dmitry Peskov, Kremlin press secretary, flatly refused the offer, calling it, quote, inappropriate. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported a school in Toretsk was destroyed by Russian shelling. Additionally, he reported Selidov was hit by multiple S-300 anti-aircraft rockets used for ground attack, damaging more than 30 five-story apartment buildings, killing one person and wounding five. Okay, let's all take a deep breath here. 
We'll try to end this segment with something at least slightly amusing. A video on the internet shared by Russian soldiers showed they had looted a collection of electric tea kettles, which are very popular in almost any country not called the United States. However, they were having a problem with them. You see, the soldiers never bothered to take the base, which provides the heating element. Instead, they put the electric kettles directly on a gas stove, despite having plastic bottoms. Looting, even electric tea kettles, is considered a war crime. Finally, if you need more of a lift, you can watch a video of a recently liberated babusia in a Kharkiv village respond to the question, how does it feel to be free now? As always, we link to it, and the kettle video, in our full situation report on Patreon. You'll want tissues. Trust me. In geopolitical news, Putin's stature on the world stage has diminished since the February 24th wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. At the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, leaders from Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan, India, and Turkey left the Russian president awkwardly waiting for photo ops and question-and-answer sessions with the press. The scene of Putin swaying, pretending to look at his phone and shuffling through note cards was a jarring display. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi publicly rebuked Putin for continuing the war in Ukraine, telling him, quote, I know that today's era is not an era of war, and I have spoken to you on the phone about this. End quote. The leader of India also expressed concern about food, fertilizer, and energy being weaponized by the Kremlin. Putin responded, quote, I know about your position on the conflict in Ukraine, and I know about your concerns. We want all of this to end as soon as possible. End quote. In another stunning turn of events, Belarus gave China strategic partner status, which Russia does not hold with the dictator run rump state. The Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, is crumbling less than two weeks after Russia's defeat in Kharkiv. The Kremlin was unwilling or incapable of honoring an Article 4 request from Armenia for military support after Azerbaijan crossed the border in a conflict that killed almost 200 soldiers from both sides. A border crisis between CSTO members Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan exploded into almost all-out war, with tanks crossing borders and artillery fire across the entire frontier. In Kyrgyzstan, the regional capital of Botkin was attacked by rockets. Both countries host Russian military bases, and both garrisons have been subject to troop and equipment drawdowns to support the war in Ukraine. The Kremlin asked the two nations to stop hostilities and threatened that if they didn't, they would be forced to ask nicely again, because I don't know, we've got nothing. Okay? CSTO represents six nations, including Russia, with four currently engaged in armed conflict and Belarus a close partner of Russia in the Ukraine war. In another diplomatic blow to the Kremlin, United States Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Congressperson Jackie Speer announced they were traveling to Armenia to meet with Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, as well as other government officials in Yerevan, the capital. The United Nations approved a request by President Zelensky to address the General Assembly using a pre-recorded message instead of personally attending. 
The request was approved in a 101-7 vote, with 19 abstentions, including China. The seven countries voting no were Belarus, Cuba, Eritrea, Nicaragua, North Korea, Syria, and Russia. The request is considered extraordinary, and the UN clarified that this is not setting a new precedent. A former high-level FBI agent directly involved in the investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign's contact with Russia is now under criminal investigation. Charles McGonigal, who has since left the FBI, is or was under a grand jury hearing over his connections and dealings with Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Deripaska was believed to be the key contact working with the Trump campaign in attempts to manipulate United States federal elections. Sergei Shestakov, originally from Russia, testified to the grand jury that he helped facilitate a connection between McGonagall and a company called Spectrum Risk Solutions. McGonagall then referred those contacts to the law firm of Cobra & Kim, which specializes in criminal defense for fraud and misconduct investigations. Shestakov was paid a $33,000 referral fee, and while none of this activity was illegal, McGonagall failed to disclose his associations, which are covered under the Foreign Registration Act. If criminal charges are filed against McGonagall, he could face five years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. Members of the Russian state Duma are clearly focusing on the world's critical issues, Legislation has been put forward to fine map makers that don't show Crimea as a part of Russia. Maps that don't make this change will be labeled, quote, extremist material, with 15-day imprisonment for each map in possession and fines of up to 1 million rubles. And in economic news, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic nationalized the cellular towers of Ukrainian mobile operators Trimob, Kyivstar, and LifeCell. Nationalization will enable transitioning the carrier towers to Russian cellular service providers. TASS reported that Germany opened negotiations with oil-rich Kazakhstan to replace embargoed Russian oil through Druzhba. Ukraine and the European Union have agreed to visa-free transit of motor transport. EU member nations and Ukrainian drivers won't need visas to transport goods across borders, and the requirement to hold an international driver's license has been eliminated. The Russian ruble closed the week down slightly, dropping to 61 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil and gasoline prices were unchanged, with WTI crude trading at $85 a barrel and Brent holding at $91 a barrel. RBOB Wholesale United States Gasoline on the Spot Market held steady at $2.41 a gallon, or 64 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures increased to $8.59 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates, and don't forget to listen to David's Week in Review episode tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.